0: this podcast is a member of the place to be nation family visit us at place to nation.com the only place to be in your pop culture world
1: an anthology about the bad the short-lived and the forgotten shows and events in television history this is it was a thing on tv
2: happy
0: before i change my mind I give you
1: Super Train!
2: Episode 443, Submission Number 130. What happens when a character dies? This is one of our classic deep dive episodes where we go over cases in which a notable character on a television series dies what happens leading up to it what happens afterwards what happens to the star and we've got a lot to go over here i pretty much grouped them into two sort of categories character dies show keeps going and character dies show ends and the first entry that i have for character dies show keeps going is Ned Stark of Game of Thrones, played by Sean Beam, of course. And this was the first case of the show killing off people willy-nilly.
0: But let's be quite honest. If Sean Bean's in the cast of the show, you know at some point his character is going to die. Because his characters die in almost everything.
2: Yes, uh, fearing for his daughters, Ned makes a public confession of his treason. The sadistic Joffrey Baratheon, however, has Ned executed anyway for his own amusement and forced Sansa Stark to watch Ned's severed head mounted on a spike. This is where you learn people of great import are going to die on this show. Because if I'm not mistaken, Ned Stark was pretty high up in the Game of Thrones food chain, wasn't he? I'm guessing I've
0: never read any of the George R. R. Martin books.
2: So what happened to Sean Bean afterwards? The show continued on its hit trajectory, and Sean Bean has gone on to have a fruitful career, so nothing of value was lost, I guess. Let's just say Ned Stark died,
0: so Maisie Williams could have great success.
2: Another legendary character death, at least in as much as legendary character deaths from 80s era comedies are concerned, Valerie Hogan from The Hogan Family.
0: Or as it was called back then, Valerie. But then when her character was killed off, it was Valerie's family, The Hogan's. And then in like season four, it became The Hogan Family.
2: Yeah, there's an interesting story. Valerie Harper, who was originally the driving force of this sitcom, this was her first big post-Rota role. She was going to juggle her career and raising three sons with an absent pilot husband. And then Valerie Harper wanted a little bit more money. Brandon Tarnikoff, who was programming chief of NBC at the time, didn't like any of this drama going on, and publicly stated that if the fighting did not cease between the production company, Lorimar Television, and Valerie Harper and her husband, Tony Cacciotti, they were arguing about salary increases and a larger cut of future syndication revenue, He is not afraid to recast. He suggested Sandy Duncan as a replacement to Miller. That's Tom Miller and Bob Boyette. And Miller and Boyette were like, you know what? That's a good idea. Sandy Duncan has just signed a contract to star in something at NBC. And Miller and Boyette were looking for an end to this feud. So at the beginning of season three, Valerie Hogan was dead. And the show continued for another four years. And of course, Valerie Harper still had a career to this day.
0: Until her passing a couple years ago.
2: Next one is a fairly recent example. Idris Elba in The Wire playing Stringer Bell. Went on to become one of modern television, if not television history's, most shocking character deaths. He was, like, one of the uh, main characters during the first three seasons of The Wire. And this was, like, before anybody knew Idris Elba as Luther. And, frankly, before HBO got in the habit of killing off major characters. Chad Coleman who was also on The Wire, had this to say about it. About characters who die. They all have a connection to me, but early on when they killed off Idris Alba and The Wire, I realized anything was possible. From that point on, everywhere I went, I would think to myself, okay, just remember, they killed off Idris. We even have a conversation, Idris and myself, prior to that, with me going, no way, man, they're not going to do that, no way. So after that, I was always in the back of my head, And I realized, you are here for a good time, not a long time, so make an impact. I guess this was like the impetus for killing people in the name of narrative. As opposed to killing people because they want off the show or killing people just to fire them. Another show that was really good about doing that, that would be killing people in the name of narrative, Grey's Anatomy. They killed off multiple people. They killed Meredith Grey's little sister Lexi, played by Kyler Lee. They killed T.R. Knight's character, Georgia O'Malley. And much to the dismay of middle-aged Thursday night female viewers everywhere. Oh, yeah. They
0: killed off McDreamy. That was a rough time in America. Everyone was mourning the loss of McDreamy.
2: Nobody could possibly kill McDreamy. I mean, look at him. I mean, come on. You wouldn't kill this guy. But sure enough, season 11, episode 21. And it wasn't so much, you know, a thing over time. He was hit by a truck. And one of the earliest deaths was Denny Duquette. Season 2, episode 27, played by Jeffrey Dean Morgan. He was on a wait list for a heart transplant, and it never quite
0: made it. Oh. Or Jeffrey Dean Morgan.
2: But all of these people would, you know, go on to bigger and better things. So we're not going to cry over that.
0: Oh, but the next one, Chico, this is Uh probably when you think of character depths. The biggest
2: one of them all. James Evans of Good Times. The origin of this is that who is the breakout character in Good Times? Don't say Mike Evans. Oh, JJ. Yeah. JJ is the breakout character. But the thing of it is, Esther Roll and John Amos were in this show about... You know, a family grounded in reality. Because, hey, it's a Norman Lear show. Of course it's going to be grounded in reality and grounded in the times and all of that. And then you have director John Rich who decided he was going to develop JJ's character. Because he's the guy who tests well with the audience. Never mind the fact that both of the parents think of him as a buffoon. As the role, she was vocal about her hate of the character. Now, if you remember, she did take a season off, but she did come back. John Amos, even more outspoken about his dissatisfaction, he said in an interview with the Los Angeles Times, the writers would prefer to put a chicken hat on JJ and have him prance around saying, Might! and that way they could waste a few minutes and not have to write meaningful dialogue. He was more angered about his role in the scheme of things, but he was less public about it. But after season three, he was fired due to disagreements with Norman Lear. When it happened back in 1976, he was like, I want to focus on a film career. But he admitted... Norman Lear called him and told him his contract option was not being renewed. That's the same thing as being fired, he said. So, season four began with the big move. And at the end of part one, because everybody's ready to welcome James back from Mississippi, they find out that James was killed in an automobile accident. I just remember watching the reruns of that episode and it was like, she did not seem shocked at all through part two. But then that pivotal scene, damn, damn,
0: damn. Oh, I give Esther a lot of credit. She gave her heart out throwing that salad ball to the ground.
2: But Greg, you probably know more about this one more than i do it is murray goldberg as played by jeff garland
0: i mean i'm not really a big goldberg guy but it's my understanding they just killed murray goldberg off because jeff garland had well incidents we'll just say that and like they wrote around his character like near the end of the series And, of course, we alluded to it in one of the year-end review shows. That terrible-ass CGI Jeff Garland, which is nightmare fuel. Mike, would you agree that's nightmare fuel?
1: It looked like it was PS2 or PS3 quality graphics in a PS5 world. It was horrible.
0: It was. And eventually the people at the Goldbergs were like, eh, let's just kill the character off. And they did.
2: The next entry here. Oh, this is great.
0: Uh, yeah. What what did I say? Let me read this, okay? Please do. In the sheet of the rundown, it says, South Park, Kenny McCormick, dot, dot, dot,
2: repeatedly. It almost got to the point where we have to talk about why they stopped killing Kenny every episode. Yeah, because Trey
0: Parker and Matt Stone knew Kenny was a breakout character based on the fact he died in every episode and the next episode would start and everyone would act like he didn't die and it got to a point where it's like oh god we have to keep coming up with ways for him to die let's just make an episode where we like finally kill him off for good and I remember the episode laughing my ass off like they're acting like he's really gonna die laughing like, ha ha ha, that's hilarious because he always dies. And then for like a season they actually like stuck by that. Until the last episode of the next season where they basically pulled a Bobby Ewing and he just randomly shot. what was it Mike, was it the Santa Claus goes to Iraq episode?
1: I don't remember the specific episode.
0: But I do remember it was a Christmas episode. And then at the end it's like, Oh, hi, Kenny. Where were you? He's like, who's the center over there? And so when he came back, it's like, whenever Kenny died from that point off, they, like, made it special. Like, they'd have, like, many episodes where he didn't die. But when he actually did die, it would be, like, like an event. Like, the most notable death I can think of is, like, the WTF wrestling episode of South Park where he was El Polio Loco and he died at a fireworks explosion. Do you remember that? Mm Mm-hmm. That was great. And then they made him dying like a part of his Mysterion superhero character. Really? Yeah. If you play the South Park game, it's like a big thing about how he doesn't die. Like, at all. Like, he's immortal.
1: Also, there is an episode of South Park, I forget which one it is, I remember the B plot was Kenny was trying to uh, have his mother uh, miscarry because uh, she was pregnant with another kid and he didn't want the competition. And Kenny died. And then at the end of the show, the baby was born and it looked just like Kenny. And there was a comment made between the mom and the dad, you know, we should name him Kenny. And uh, uh, one of the parents, I think the dad said, we better make sure he doesn't die or something to that extent because he's died like 47 times and the mom chimes in actually 48 (laughs) so they actually did keep count of how many times kenny died i thought that was brilliant
2: so from that we go to the nascar track and maude flanders on the simpsons they couldn't get maggie roswell back to voice the character many viewers and this is according to the Simpsons fandom page. They were getting ready to just base the show for killing off a popular character. The reason why they killed off Maud in particular, and this is Matt Grading talking... They want to open up new storylines after Marsha Mitzvig-Gaven was brought in to voice the characters that Maggie Roswell voiced due to her moving to Colorado, making it difficult to continue her roles on the show. This was season 11. Before, but... before working remotely. Before working remotely, yes. But Maggie Roswell would return to the show, but she only voices Maud when she appears as a ghost or in flashback. So they killed off Maude Flanders because the voice actress couldn't voice her anymore. Then when the voice actress returns, she plays Maude Flanders' ghost? Ghost! Perhaps even more controversial than that, though. Brian Griffin on Family
0: Guy. Now this is a death when it happened. I said, this is bullshit. This is going to be like retconned in like a season.
2: And sure enough, it was.
1: Not even in a season, though. It was four
2: episodes. But still, they went as far as to make a new opening with a new dog played by Tony Sirico. I loved him, but he was no Brian. I don't even remember who he is. Vinny! Vinny, thank you. Probably made out that way because Stewie went back in time and erased all of that happening.
1: Well, he didn't really erase all that happening. What he did was he went to the point right before when Brian died. And just for a little bit of background, they were playing street hockey, Brian and uh, Stewie. And uh, there was a reckless driver who didn't slow down. Stewie got out of the way. Brian didn't. And Brian perished. So Stewie went back in time right before. Time that the driver caused this incident and basically yanked Brian out of the way and that's how history got changed or maybe not history got changed but how we didn't lose Brian even though we did lose Brian for like I said four episodes imagine
2: if you had a hit sitcom it got canceled but then it was brought back with new episodes some 20 years later that's what happened to Roseanne Got canceled. They brought it back. I could talk about Dan Connor, But per the show, that never happened. That was all a dream. That was a good year. The reboot had a good first year. And they were getting ready for year two. And then Roseanne forgot the key rule of social media. Just because you can say something. Doesn't necessarily mean you should. She said something, ABC caught wind of it, and fired her. So, we have Roseanne without Roseanne. What do we do? Hey, we'll just center it around Sarah Gilbert's character and call it The Connors, And it still airs to this day. Roseanne, not so much. And now we get to the two big character dies, show keeps going moments. The first one happened on MASH. And it involves the patron saint of this podcast, McLean Stevenson. Henry Blake getting ready for whatever's going on in the future as he gets ready to leave Korea and head back to the States. And then that pivotal scene that only Gary Berghoff was privy to. Corporal Henry Blake's plane was shot over the Sea of Japan. It spun in. There are no survivors. That was season three. MASH went hard as hell. And then right after that they got Henry Morgan and the rest was history. And According to The Powers That Be, creators Larry Gelbart and Gene Reynolds, they wanted Henry Blake dead to show the true horrors of war. They said they received countless fan complaints about the final fate, but the creators stood by their decision, and they were right to do so, I think. Because again, what's that old saying? War is hell. And then you have on All in the Family, the death of Edith Bunker. Because Gene Stapleton was the comic foil to Archie Bunker and Carol O'Connor. They had great chemistry, they had great interplay, and all of a sudden, Edith Bunker was gone. So why did this happen? According to Gene Stapleton, she wanted to pursue other projects, believing that the Edith Bunker character ran its course. And that just left a normally crass and brazen Archie Bunker incredibly crestfallen. And, you know, after this, Carol O'Connor and company would move on to Archie Bunker's place which continues the saga of the Archie Bunker character in a new setting, this bar, and with new people, most notably a pre-New Radicals Danielle Brizabois.
1: And also, it should be added, obviously, Archie Bunker's place was a bar, and that was Archie Bunker's new profession. So not only do you lose a character in uh, Edith Bunker, but also you now have Archie, starting a new career and nothing against that show because it did run for four seasons, maybe four semi unspectacular seasons, but it still kept that character going.
2: And you know, as long as there is television, there are going to be characters who die and the show will keep going. We have a whole lot more people. You have your Prue Hallowells, your Marissa Coopers, your Bobby Simonses, your Tim Speedles, your Dr. Mark Green's, But this is a good start. And then you have characters who die when the show ends. One of the most notable, Walter White, who was, let's be honest, dying when the show began. They basically said, like, right in the first episode, oh, he's going to die. The only thing we can do is keep him alive as long as possible to, you know, cook. And then you have perhaps one of the most controversial endings of death in the last 20 or so years, Tracy McConnell's death on How I Met Your Mother. If you don't know who Tracy McConnell is, first of all, how dare you? Second of all, she's the mother. We didn't know that this was going to happen when season one began. We just knew how this story would end. It's like, this story's going to end with Ted meeting the mother. We didn't know that season nine was just going to be this season-long mind trip. I mean, you have stuff happening that weekend, stuff happening in the past, stuff happening in the future, stuff happening in the further future. We get closer to the year 2030 when this show actually happens. And then, all of a sudden, the big secret that Lindsay Fonseca and David Henry have been hiding for seven years. Yeah, the mother? She's dead! Although, I think
0: season eight kind of hinted that she was gonna die. Because I think there's, like, one episode where it basically hints that. So I went through, like, the final season already knowing that she's probably dead.
2: Are you talking about the, uh, 45 days sort of monologue that Ted's giving. Yes. I loved that monologue, by the way.
0: Oh, that was great acting by Josh Radner there. That was a great moment.
2: And then we have Nate Fisher of Six Feet Under. He and everybody else on the cast die at the end. I mean, we get the fast forward of all the main characters dying, complete with your white screen with your uh, character name and the years they lived. You know what I'm talking about, right, guys?
0: Yes, I know what you're talking about. But Peter Krause's character of Nate Fisher, didn't he, like, mumble, like, numb arm, and then he all of a sudden
2: died? He mumbled, My arm's numb. Numb arm. Numb arm. Numb arm. And you would think that here is a show about death. People would be numb to this. But again, this is a show that began with Nate Fisher's dad dying. So it begins with a Fisher death and ends with a Fisher death.
0: Oh, hey, speaking of people that were on Six Feet Hunter, Michael C. Hall's character of Dexter in that reboot season. I can't believe this because this was news to me when I saw the rundown for this episode. His character
2: dies at the end of the reboot season. And he says that this is the first time I'm feeling love, and it's for my son, and that's as human as I've ever been. Because if you remember, Dexter is a bit of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Psychopath. Oh, yeah, he's a killer. But he's a good killer. And the thing of it is, It's like, he doesn't die just to die. He dies so his son Harrison didn't have to live with his shame. It was a bit of a shock that happened, but it was a necessary shock. That's pretty much what happens when a notable character from one of your favorite shows shuffles off their mortal coil. The story continues or the story ends. It all depends on what the narrative calls for and what's available at the time. Sometimes it just happens, but when a beloved character dies, it makes for a very memorable thing on TV. Okay, you know what? We've been talking about all of this demure stuff. Can we, you know, lighten the mood a bit?
1: It's time for this weekend
2: match game, Hollywood Square, our history. Oh, yeah, that'll do
1: it. So now we're in the second week of January of 1984. Week 11. We've been doing this 11 weeks now. Oh my gosh. The celebrities this week are Mark Russell, Anson Williams, Mary Paige Keller. Leonard Fry, Pat McCormick, Jenny Lee Harrison, Phil Proctor, and Sybil Danning. Now, we did have a player retire this week undefeated. Victoria Narbutis retired with $46,200. And we talked last week about the total dry streak at winning on Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour. We said the show had gone nine episodes without a win in the head-to-head match. The last win being the Tom and coma episode, if you will, we actually had four out of five head-to-head winners this week. We had a $30,000 win on Tuesday of this week. We had a $30,000 win on Tuesday, a $20,000 win on Friday, and on Thursday we had a $10,000 win. And what's interesting about all of them is that it was with John Bauman. So apparently, John Bauman was the good luck charm for that week. And actually, if you watch the episodes as we go down the line, John Bauman is called very frequently for the super match, for whatever reason. And I wonder if the powers that be recognized this and said, hey, let's make sure we don't give John the 30 all that often because, you know, we don't want to kill the budget. In future months, I'll get a little deeper into that because I noted some stuff about how frequently... John had the 30 as we get into later months into like April and May of 1984 so that's this week in Match Game Hollywood Squares history next week it's going to be a good week I know what's coming up next week and I can't wait to see what's going to happen then
0: but I want to mention one thing Mike and this is going to be something we're going to look forward to in two months a show has just premiered on NBC that I hold very dear and you know what that is
1: a show's premiering in two months on NBC that you?
0: No, no, a show's premiering right now. That's going to pay off in two months on NBC for Match Game Hollywood Squares.
1: I think I know what you're talking about. That's right. We are talking about Riptide, right? Yes. Okay. I, I didn't know if you're talking about Hot Potato. I didn't know if you're talking about Night Court. There's so many shows hey, that wasn't NBC. Wasn't talking about Night Court, you silly goose. Hey, you sit down. We'll talk to you next week.
0: Now, wait a minute, guys. I think we're forgetting about somebody. I really don't want to talk about
1: it. <laughs> oh, oh, my God! Oh, yeah. Oh. Not another Pulaski episode. Listen, there's no truth to the
0: rumor that she was a relative of Pulaski. Michael Kuda said so. There's no truth to that rumor.
2: Episode 444, submission number 133, What Happens When a Star Dies? This is a deep dive episode that investigates the times in television history when a castmate dies in the middle of a production. And before we begin, just a bit of a heads up, we're going to get into some serious talk here. If you find any of this subject matter upsetting, you may want to skip this one. And if you or someone you love is in crisis, we encourage you to reach out to the Lifeline by calling or texting 988 or go to speakingofsuicide.com slash resources for assistance. That being said, it's time to talk about what happens when you have a very popular TV show with a very popular star, and all of a sudden... The star dies. Now, there are some very creative workarounds that have worked for some shows. There's rejiggering of premise, and then there's moments when you just cancel the show. One of the most notable times when a star died in the middle of production was Freddie Prinze who played Chico Rodriguez in Chico and the Man with Jack Albertson. By this time, Freddie Prinze had completed 62 episodes. But then, on January 29, 1977, Freddie Prinze died due to a self-inflicted gunshot to the head. Episodes completed prior to his death were aired on schedule, And the first aired episode included an acknowledgement from producer James Comac, thanking everybody for their kind words and outpouring of sympathy. Following the last completed episode, Chico's absence was explained as being away. But on the final season, they bring in a 12 year old boy named Raul. played by Gabrielle Melgar. And this episode aired a year after Freddie Prince's death. Raul runs away. It was a very special episode. It explains that Chico had died but did not give an explanation. But at the end of that season, the show was canceled. It wasn't Chico and the Man without Chico. And the 12-year-old, little Chico, did not help. Another tragedy happened in 2003 when in the middle of shooting episodes of Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter, John Ritter suffered an aortic dissection and died. His character was explained by having succumbed to a heart attack in the two-part season premiere Goodbye and they had to bring in two people to sort of Fill in that role, James Garner and David Spade. It went on for a couple more seasons, but the plot was lost by then, I think. But if you are a millennial, then no doubt you remember what happened with Corey Monteith's character, Finn Hudson, in the episode The Quarterback on Glee. Production was delayed to give cast members a chance to grieve. And they shared their grief in the episode The Quarterback, which featured many people remembering the life of Finn Hudson. And I don't know if you remember that episode, but it was just a really emotional time. That tribute episode did not specify what Finn died of. It just specified that Finn was gone. Of course, Corey tragically died due to circumstances that are not important here. And then we have Luke Perry. Now, we grew up watching Luke Perry on 90210, and we thought this guy had a future. Turns out he did. Played Fred Andrews on 42 episodes of Riverdale. Fred Andrews, of course, the father of Archie Andrews. In 2019, he died because of a stroke. His character was killed off with an off-screen hit-and-run accident in the season four premiere, and the show just went on. And then you have one of the more creative ways of dealing with the death of a beloved castmate, and that would be the death of Jack Sue, who played Nick Yamana on Barney Miller. He died in 1979 due to complications from esophageal cancer. The character was written out without explanation. There are some episodes that allude to Yamada's death. He last appeared in Season 5, Episode 9, and the 14th episode, that's five new episodes later, aired on the same day Jack Sue died, and in the spring of 79, the cast broke the fourth wall, and basically shared their grief with the viewing audience in a special tribute episode.
0: And that's a really great episode if you ever see it on Antenna TV.
1: Oh, not just Antenna TV. It's been on one of those reconfigured religious channels. Not Inspiration, FETV. Because they show Barney Miller like two episodes uh, every day around midnight, and I've seen them go through the entire cycle of shows probably three times in the last year. That's a very heavy episode, absolutely.
2: Around that same time, maybe a couple years later, we had the death of Jim Davis, who played the patriarch of the Ewing family, Jock Ewing, on Dallas. He died of multiple myeloma and after an extended absence his character was killed off in a fiery helicopter crash. But that wasn't the only death that show had because if you remember there was a reboot. Larry Hagman was all too happy to get involved with that. But after 17 episodes he too died from cancer. This time it was acute myeloid leukemia. I'm kind of sort of hesitant to say that this was genius writing but J.R. Ewing was killed off with two fatal gunshot wounds an obvious homage to who shot J.R.
0: And if I recall the writers did it like a mystery kind of like a murder mystery thing with like J.R. providing the clues from like the grave it seemed
2: in season two of the TNT run There was actually two really good episodes. Uh, That would be episode 8, JR's Masterpiece, and episode 15, Legacies. It finally answered the question that was uttered in The Furious and the Fast. Who shot JR? And I don't even remember who ultimately did it.
0: It sure as hell wasn't Mary Crosby.
2: But Dallas would go on for another season, and then it would be canceled at the end of 2014. But you want to talk about tragic. You want to talk about all the feels. When Marsha Wallace died and the Simpsons basically aired that tribute at the beginning of the 25th season episode, The Man Who Grew Too Much. It began, as it usually does, with Bart Simpson at the chalkboard, writing his little, I will not, blah, 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 blah. But instead, we see Bart Simpson with this sad look on his face, writing one line, We'll really miss you, Mrs. K., At the end of that episode, sort of bookending everything, Ned recalls how much he loved Edna. He called Mrs. Krabappel Edna, and he and Nelson mourn her death. Suffice it to say, it was a fitting tribute to a beloved character. From one Fox animated sitcom to another, as we go to Family Guy, where we have not one, but two passings of two beloved characters.
1: And the first one we're going to talk about is Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher, in case you didn't know, played Peter's boss at the check it Pete Beer Factory. And we know how she uh, unfortunately passed. And Peter ended up uh, getting a new boss who's played by Michael Dorn, a much stricter boss than Carrie Fisher ever was, even though Carrie Fisher as boss was uh, sort of a hen pecking type of boss. But I think the bigger death is Adam West. Because if you don't remember, Adam West played the mayor on Family Guy. He was the mayor of Quahog. And after his passing... We have a new mayor played by Sam Elliott, and oddly enough, the character name for Sam Elliott is Wild Wild West, so keeping the last name West, but now sort of playing off the fact that Sam Elliott is this tough, this uh, cowboy type uh, who you've seen in plenty of shows and movies over the years, but the true legacy of the show regarding Adam West isn't just you know, him being the mayor for 20 years, but. I think the big legacy for Adam West in Family Guy lore, they renamed the high school in Quahog. It used to be called James Woods High. But obviously we know that James Woods hasn't really done some of the smartest stuff in the last, say, decade or so. So maybe they found an opportunity and they renamed the school Adam West High School.
0: Now, hold on. We know the real reason why they've renamed the school. It's because they probably were so ashamed of class holes.
1: We're trying to keep it serious. Come on. He's not wrong, though. Okay, with that, I'm going to give it back to Chico, because this is a surprising death, and I think possibly some of us may still be in a little bit of denial over it, because it was so unexpected
2: like, for the last three years, we've been watching Leslie Jordan tear it up on social media and also tear it up on television. I mean, he was on The Cool Kids. He was in the middle of doing Call Me Cat. But then all of a sudden, he had a heart problem and he died in the middle of shooting what would be season three of Call Me Cat. And they just wrote the character out as having moved to Tahiti and my Bialik has said that after the show took a production pause for a couple weeks for everybody to grieve the cast felt very strongly and completely unanimously that the thought of doing a funeral episode while we were actively grieving our friend it felt like a hurdle we weren't sure we all wanted to jump together I think Leslie Jordan was known so much for being Leslie, and while we also love him and know him as Phil, he's such a beloved personality, truly larger than life, to try and encapsulate that felt challenging in ways that I don't know would have been healthy for us as a cast or a production. So we found a way for him to live forever. His character will live forever, and he can have whatever adventures we all imagine. So they all go to Tahiti. They meet Phil's mother and has learned that Phil is not returning to Kentucky. He and Jalen plan to marry in Tahiti and run a bakery there, and two weeks later everyone has returned home from attending Phil and Jalen's wedding in Tahiti and contemplate life without him. At the end they all break the fourth wall, acknowledging Leslie Jordan's death and a video tribute from Dolly Parton is followed by a montage of scenes featuring Bill set to Jordan and Parton's duet, Where the Soul Never Dies.
0: I think that's very beautiful.
2: And then there's the case of Jerry Orbach, who's basically the face of the franchise, well, one of the faces of the franchise of Law & Order. You know best as Lenny Briscoe. Oh
0: yeah, Lenny Briscoe was Law & Order. He was the man on Law & Order. It's like, whenever Jerry Orbach appeared, it's like,
2: yeah, that's Briscoe. He was in Law & Order's third season. That's when we saw him first. And from there, we see him transferred over to Staten Island and then brought back after going into early retirement to take care of his wife. And then he's brought back for Law & Order Trial by Jury. And this is after appearances on The Mothership, Life on the Street, SBU, and Criminal Intent. Jerry Orbach died December 28th, 2004, from prostate cancer. And in 2005, his character was written out after the second episode of Trial by Jury. Originally going to be in an episode Baby Boom A memorial scene was filmed, but it was not aired. His absence is never acknowledged, but his death is alluded to elsewhere in the universe. And then how about this? Stanley Camel from Monk, Dr. Charles Kroger, Adrian's therapist. He died in 2008 of a heart attack, so Dr. Kroger was killed by a heart attack. And replaced by Dr. Nevin Bell, portrayed by Hector Elizondo. Not much of the way of tribute. It's just, you know, we replace the character and we move on.
0: Which is the same with our next person we're going to be talking about. Where
2: Yeah, after three seasons of Coach Pantuso on Cheers, Nicholas Colasanto died of a heart ailment. He was killed off at the beginning of season four and replaced with Woody Boyd, played, of course, by Woody Harrelson.
0: And it was kind of creative because I think the way they wrote Woody into the show was Woody was Coach's pen pal, and he went up to Cheers to meet him, and then he found out he passed away. And so the people at the bar thought, oh, well, you know what? Let's give Woody his old job. So, that's how they wrote
2: him into the show. That was actually pretty uh ingenious. And then we have Nancy Marchand, who of course played the matriarch of the Soprano family, Livia Soprano. She died in the middle of producing season three. And according to Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, A storyline was planned where Livia would be called to testify against her son, Tony Soprano, in court, giving evidence on stolen airline tickets she had received from him. But after Marchant died in 2000, existing footage and computer-generated imagery was used to create a final scene between Tony and Livia before the character, too, died. It cost HBO a quarter of a million dollars. Now, we talked about this person before in previous entry Voyagers, but now here's the case of John Eric Hexum, who was in the middle of shooting cover-ups one and only season. He managed to get seven episodes in the can. Unfortunately, he was playing around on the set He had an accident, a self-inflicted blank cartridge accident, and it was explained in the universe, and we will talk about this when we eventually cover cover cover-up. Matt Carper was not coming back. According to the credits, when a star dies, its light continues to shine across the universe for millenniums. John Eric Hexum died in October of this year, but the lives he touched will continue to be brightened by his light forever and ever. His role as the partner of Danny Reynolds would go to Anthony Hamilton, who would, of course, be the muscle on the new Mission Impossible. From there we go to Season 5 of Gimme a Break. SoftSuite had already recorded four seasons as Carl Kaniski. Over the interregnum, he died due to cancer. This was addressed in the beginning of Season 5. Nell is sad and doesn't want anyone to remind her of the Chief since he died. Joey receives part of a toy train the Chief gave him and puts it in the Chief's room. Nell gets mad when Jonathan insists that he and Julie move into the Chiefs' old room, but gets extremely mad when Joey plays with his train in it. Grandpa, played by John Hoyt, says that Carl would have been happy at the family still together, bringing him up in their daily discussions. He says they all loved him and that it's not right not to talk about him because he was loved by them. Nell then changes her mind and lets Joey keep the train in the Chief's old room and lets Julie and Jonathan move into it. And at the end of the episode, camera focuses on the Chief's photo and the screen slowly fades to black with no applause. It doesn't happen often, but usually when somebody dies, that's the end of the show. That was the case when Ted Knight recorded... Six seasons of Too Close for Comfort. Of course, the sixth season, with a change in premise and a change in scenery, would air as the Ted Knight show. Production was supposed to get started on the next season, with Ted Knight's character planning on returning to work. But then Ted Knight perished due to complications from colorectal cancer. Episodes that were completed prior to his final illness aired on schedule through the end of the 86-87 season, and then the show was canceled. And the Ten night show was rolled into the syndication package of the other five seasons of Too Close for Comfort. And then there's something as easy to write around as Doctor Who. Where Roger Delgado, who, if I'm not mistaken, was the first actor to play the master. Yes, it was. Died in a traffic collision. So, you are the master. Your actor died. What happens? We regenerate and we move on. And that's exactly what happened. Roger Delgado regenerated into Anthony Ainley. Wait, I'm not going to
0: stand for this Jeffrey Bieber's or Chico, because didn't the master, like, become, like, this weird, like, blackish thing? That was after Anthony Ainley, wasn't it? No, no, that was when Roger Delgado died, like, years later.
1: Oh. That's okay.
0: how they explained it, and that's how they transitioned to Anthony Ainley later in 81.
2: Oh, okay. I keep getting my masters mixed up. It was Roger Delgado, then Jeffrey Biebers, then Anthony Ainley. Then Eric Roberts. Then Derek Jacoby. Then John Sim. Then Michelle Gomez. And then Sasha Dawan. Yes. Now, the next one is a bit of a weird case because it is Power Rangers' Tui Trong. Tweet Trong was the first person on the uh, franchise to actually die in real life. She died in a car crash. It was a very sad moment. But by that time, she had already quit the cast. But I included her in this list because her character plays a pivotal role in last year's Power Rangers Once and Always, where treaty is back as the Yellow Ranger, but Robo Rita kills her, and the mantle is is picked up by her daughter Min, played by Charlie Kirsch. So, a bit of a tribute there, as we see a whole lot of imagery of Trini, and you see the uh, crayon coloring of Treaty and little Min together, but a bit of a fitting tribute there, albeit a few years late. These next two... And these are the last two on our list proper. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through these. Because the first one, when I heard about it, it was just an absolute gut check. We all remember the case of Phil Hartman in 1998. He was murdered by his wife in a murder-suicide. And this was when he was in the middle of doing season five. ...of news radio, which I watched religiously back in the day. I was a big fan of Dave Foley. I was a big fan of Phil Hartman. I was a big fan of Candy Alexander. So when Phil Hartman died in the middle of doing news radio, I'm like, how are they even going to continue this? In an office full of crazies, he was basically chief crazy. But Bill McNeil was explained away as having died of a heart attack at the beginning of season five. They had a tribute episode, and then they introduced his replacement, Max Lewis, played by longtime friend John Lovitz. I could not for the life of me, I mean, John Lovitz would have to be one of the best actors in the business to take up that mantle. I mean, you go in with awfully big shoes to fill, it is just absolutely shocking. And while we're talking about Phil Hartman, his characters on The Simpsons, Troy McClure, and Lionel Hutz, they've since been retired. No recasting, they occasionally appear in background shots, but that is the end of that. But, perhaps the most gut-wrenching of all of the deaths on our list here. Will Lee from Sesame Street. Mr. Hooper himself. Mr. Hooper, he was everybody's favorite shopkeeper. His name is on the sign. We can't just explain this away. And the challenge comes... Because this is a kids' show. Not just a kids' show. A long-running young kids' show. You have to be the one to explain that Mr. Hooper
1: is gone. And he's not coming back. And again, you need to explain this in a way that a four- or five-year-old could understand. And all
2: of this would be explained... In the November 24th, 1983 episode, Goodbye, Mr. Hooper. I'm going back to Wikipedia on this. Research was conducted to ascertain the messages they want to convey about the topic, as well as the effect of the episode would have on young children who watched it. They were advised by experts in the field of child psychology, child development, and religion. Studies conducted after the episode was produced showed that most children understood the messages about death, and they experienced no long-term ill effects. Norman Stiles, who wrote the episode, reports that the cast and crew thought that filming it was an emotional and touching experience, setting the standard for dealing with difficult topics on children's television. It was heartbreaking, yet affirming, and remains one of the proudest moments in the show's history. The episode ended with Big Bird hanging Mr. Hooper's picture near his nest. Louise knocks on the door to introduce the new baby, followed by the entire grown-up cast, and Big Bird says, You know what the nice thing is about new babies? One day they're not here. And the next day, here they are. It's a sort of a nice tone shift because, like, five or ten minutes beforehand, Big Bird gets the news that Mr. Hooper is not coming back. And Big Bird's like, why does it have to be this way? Give me one good reason. And Gordon, who at this point is played by Roscoe Orman, says, it has to be this way because... And the only thing that he's left to say, because of the running gag of mispronouncing his name so much, he just looks at the picture and says, I'm going to miss you, Mr. Hooper. Imagine me, three years old, watching this, not having much in the way of any understanding as to life and death, and all of a sudden... I have questions for the first time in my life. I imagine that that is what exactly the producers of Sesame Street was going for when they aired that episode.
1: I definitely think they were trying to spur on some sort of conversation between parents and children about death. Because really, how many people at that age, three, four, five, six years old, have experienced death at that point. Me, I would have been probably about seven or eight when Mr. Hooper died, but I remember it very clearly. And really the only person in my family that had passed away at that point was my great-grandmother. And the only thing I remember about her or her house or her passing was, it was the day of my grandmother's birthday. They actually returned from a party for my grandmother and uh, and she passed away walking up the stairs to her house. But yeah, I mean, I don't remember anything about going to a funeral. I don't remember anything about, you know, some sort of explanation about death. It was essentially your great grandmother passed away. How do you convey that to, I would have been five or six years old at the time. And I totally understand it. I really understand it because, not to bring it towards me by any means, but obviously in case you don't know, uh, I lost uh, half my leg, my left leg uh, about three and a half years ago. And first time my cousin who would have been probably about two or three at the time now is five or six. He asked, you know, what happened to your leg? And I actually had to call his mom over and say, how do I answer this? I mean, yeah, I could get all scientific and stuff like that, but I don't want to talk above a a two or three-year-old's head. And so the mother simply said his leg was sick. And that makes the most sense. I mean, that's something a a kid can understand. And and I actually appreciated it without getting into – unnecessary details you're not necessarily unnecessary but unnecessary to a two or three year old so yeah i hope that was really the uh, end result of uh uh, of the mr hooper uh passing is spurring on conversation about death about the eventualities because fortunately we're all going to go at some time and obviously you know if you have pets they're going to go at some time and it's not easy to convey that to a kid let alone a real young kid a two or three-year-old but i have the feels i've been very quiet throughout most of this episode because i've been doing a lot of contemplation and reflection and uh, a, a lot of these hit very close to home for me especially phil hartman especially uh will lee as we just mentioned but uh this is definitely not a happy-go-lucky episode. I'm sorry if the, the the timbre of the episode is sort of down, but sometimes we got to talk about these serious subjects. And I do want to add, by no means is this list complete. There are many people that we have failed to talk about that doesn't minimize the importance of their deaths. Some names that we did not talk about in this episode uh, from Night Court we had Selma Diamond, who is the bailiff uh, on night court besides uh, Richard Mall. Uh, she was on for the first two seasons. She passed away. And then they replaced her with Florence Hallop, who only was on season three because she unfortunately passed away. And we got Marsha Warfield afterwards, and she's still with us. Uh, Diana Highland on Eight is Enough. Zara Cully on The Jeffersons. Will Gear, who is the grandfather on The Waltons. The Big Bang Theory, Carol Ann Susie. I know she was like a secondary character, but Walowitz's mom. Just a classic voice, a classic actress. I love it. The Young and the Restless, Christoph St. John. I don't think we uh, maybe realize how much of an impact he had on that show. He was on there forever, it seemed. Yeah. Maybe not forever, but at least I'd say, what, 25, 30 years? He was on there a long time. Seemingly forever. He was Malcolm Winters to a generation. And then Archer, uh Jessica Walter, uh the district linting pen. Oh that hurts because again, that's another person from a lot of our childhoods uh playing the chief on where in the world is Carmen San Diego. Uh Michael Conrad and Hill Street Blues. Anthony Bourdain. I mean, we could just say Anthony Bourdain, period, because you know, once he passed, obviously his show ended, but he left such an amazing legacy.
0: He was awesome, uh, Anthony Bourdain. I mean,
1: I think, at least in my opinion, I didn't appreciate his awesomeness until after he died. And that makes me feel a little guilty that I didn't appreciate it sooner. Uh, the Joker's wild. Uh, Jack Berry's passing. Pastor Plus, Alan Ludden's passing. Gene Siskel with Siskel and Ebert. What's My Line, uh, both the passing of Fred Allen, but also Dorothy Kilgallen. Dan Blocker's passing uh, from Bonanza. I think that's has a pretty big impact, even though Bonanza would only last uh, a couple more years after Dan Blocker's passing. Uh, George Reeves's passing uh, regarding the adventures of Superman. And lastly, uh, Joseph Kearns' passing uh, related to the Dennis the Menace series. So, again, by no means was our show complete by any means, but hopefully we gave a fair number of people their due recognition.
2: Once again, apologies for the tone shift, but this is something that we had in the hopper for a long time. Wanted to get it out of the way. We'll be back with happier topics next week. For example... One network with one show, and it lasted
1: less than a year. Lasted less than that. It lasted about a month. Could you even call it a network? Yes, it had affiliates, but we'll get to that next week. It's an interesting story about a network that wanted to become the fourth network at the time. We'll get into it next week. Also, we're going to have another show. We had to do a little reconfiguring of the schedule. We don't know what's going to be there just yet. So that's going to be a surprise, not just to you, but probably to us as well. So we're going to talk about that network and then something else. We don't know what we're going to talk about. It'll be right here, and it was a thing on TV. Thank you very much, and again, we I apologize, and I'm sure Chico and Greg do too, if we conjured up any sort of emotions. Uh, I know it was a very deep episode, but uh, as Chico said, this is a topic we've had sort of bouncing around for the last four to five years. And uh, I'm glad we got it done. It it was very emotional. It was not your usual episode, but we'll go back to somewhat more normal episodes, a little bit of normalcy next week.
0: Till then, we'll see you next week right here at It Was a Thing on TV.